Welcome everybody, welcome back to our Beef Central podcast series on the grill. I'm Kerry Lonigan and today on the grill, a bloke who is a great example of finding a market that really didn't exist and building that idea, that market into a thriving business. Beef Central podcasters, please welcome Murray Richardson, Managing Director of the Highland Beef Pastoral Company. Murray, hello again and welcome. Hi, Kerry. How are you? Is that how you would describe yourself, finding a market that doesn't exist? And that <laughs> well, it's a, that's a very glowing introduction. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the market existed. I think we just approached it a different way, Kerry. I think you're quite right in saying that we've, you know, we've tried to look at a market for grass-fed meat in a different way and, and approach it from the customer right the way back to the farm in our own way. Some people might say elements of it have been done before, but we're trying to do something a little bit different. Yeah. Murray, mentioning your, your setup, which we'll explain further a little later, mentioning your setup to an old mate the other day, he suggested you might well be the largest owner of uh, cattle in the world, but uh, with a company that has no land. Yeah, well, it's sort of interesting. We, I mean, we, we got into this space in a way because we were actually helping banks and financiers collateralise cattle. And one of the things we sort of thought about was, well, we could in fact do exactly that. We could actually have quite a significant herd of cattle and own no land and actually have those cattle essentially contracted. And so that's really what we've done. That's exactly our business model in many ways, yeah. It's not hard, I think, for beef people to realise that you actually are just cattle, a lot of cattle. Let's uh, go through that soon. But the Murray Richardson story, uh, raised on a sheep beef property, out of school mm-hmm. and university, you became an economist at the Reserve Bank. <laughs> <laughs> I try to hide that bit, particularly these days, Gary. But uh, yeah, saw, saw the light and left and got into food. Did you learn anything at the Reserve Bank which uh, helps in your current career as a beef producer? Look, I think the economic environment is really understanding how markets work. I, I really enjoy that. I'm, I'm really intrigued by it. Um, I really like to try and understand, you know, what, what are the drivers and who supports who and how does the money flow across a supply chain or a market. And, you know, and I think that's really, you know, what economics is really all about. It's about understanding how the money flows and, and who's influenced by what. So I think, you know, when I look at a, an opportunity or a problem or whichever way you want to put it, that's really the way I try and sort of dissect it from myself. It helps me understand and I think we've always tried to sort of structure our business so that it's a non-confrontational supply chain that supports everyone that's in it. That's the way we've set it up. And, you know, that's, for the most part, I think it works that way. It's not always possible to do that, but we like to try and make sure that everyone gets a drink and that everyone, you know, has a good understanding of the return they're going to get out of dealing with us. And I suppose part of that really is my background in really understanding markets and therefore sort of saying, well, look, if you want to try and build something that's going to be here for a long period of time, it's got to be beneficial to everyone that's in it. Yes, and those, and those markets you learned uh, and watched for some time by working for big names like Bonlac, Norco and Nestle, what was your official job description there? I was always in on the sales side of things. I spent a lot of time uh, in Nestle's dairy business in Australia and I've, I've worked in Victoria for quite a while sort of in, in and around the dairy sector so I've always been selling foodstuffs to you know a multitude of customers whether they're the big grocery customers or you know the convenience industry or the food service sector here and certainly into Southeast Asia and into Europe with Nestle um, but I've always been on the selling side of things never sort of the general management side of things and the selling side of things yeah you obviously had a yen for thinking outside the square, but 
Tell us how your plan to export grass-fed boxed beef to America. How did it actually start? Was there a light bulb moment or was it a conversation or threw over a bottle of red wine or something with a mate? What happened? Well, we, well firstly, grass-fed because, you know, I think Australia just has a really nice natural advantage in it. You know, we, we, we do it well. You know, we're not, you know, a hugely capitalised business, so we were never going to, you know, and, and the feedlot space is, you know, is very well looked after and, and we can't add any value in that feedlot space, so there was no point in us trying to compete in sort of the grain market. We'd been to America a few times. We'd chatted with some people. One of my family members sort of mentioned that he'd seen a home delivery business out of Boston in America that was actually focused on grass-fed product. And from what he could see, they were getting a lot of the grass-fed product from here. So we gave him a call and, you know, in, in a roundabout sort of way, met some people in America and one of the fellows that works with me is just a fantastic networker and very, very happy to jump on the phone and, you know, Google people and make calls and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, over a number of visits to America, um, you know, we started to develop a relationship up and then we met people that, you know, introduced us and connected all the dots and that's really how it happened. So we we started from the customer back. We actually... You know, we did make an investment in cattle here initially and sort of said, okay, well, we've got to have something on the ground to talk to a customer about. But really, um, we started our business from the customer back. So we don't have cattle in our system that aren't essentially contracted or pre-sold. And that's an important part of our business model is, you know, making sure that we have, if we've got cattle or assets here, um, that we actually have a market for them. So we're not, you know, we, we don't want to be, you know, we're not a speculator in cattle. We don't trade cattle. You know, we'll, we'll sell cattle from time to time that we don't think you're going to make the grade, but it's a very, very tiny part of our business. So, you know, that's how we, we got going, Kerry. We actually went and found the customer first and then bought them back here, you know, bought the idea back here and then essentially set the business up to service them. Very, a very unusual uh, business model, I would suggest, to go to the customer first, especially in America where... Of course, uh, grain-fed beef dominates the U.S. market. What was, in your thoughts, to settle like the picture of America wanting a grass-fed product? Uh, well, uh, look, it really probably started around. You know, there's a lot more people in a, well, there's a lot more people around the world interested in healthier diets, right? And uh, you know. Depending on who you talk to, you may find some people that'll sort of say, you know, there's attributes out of more naturally raised um, beef product, so, you know, grass-fed product. You've got a population of people in America who are quite discerning and they've got the money to be able to be discerning. Um, so for us, you know, they are a couple of the key drivers. Um, there's just a, you know... Um, there's a growing population of people that are just wanting what they see as being cleaner, healthier food. And and that was really, I think, the thing we went, really went looking for. And obviously, the American market, where big exporters to America always have been, we've got the currency advantage. There's plenty of reasons to think that we can continue to be competitive there. And their grass-fed market, you know, there's a, there's a growing grass-fed market there. It's, you know, small as a proportion of their total beef. But I think the other thing that you know is a huge asset for Australia is the traceability system that we have here. You know, so what we ship to America is no antibiotics, no HGPs, um, you know, 
free to roam, never fed grain, all that sort of thing. And so in, in putting that claim on a box and sending it through the export system, you know, you've got to have strong systems in place to be able to deliver that claim. And when you talk to buyers of grass-fed beef in America, they really trust the Australian system. So they trust systems like the NLIS, they trust the NVD system that we have here, all those sorts of things. They have elements of that in America, but they don't have it like we do. And, you know, um, I know there's a lot of, you know, over the years there's been a lot of um, questions raised about the efficacy of the NLIS and all those sorts of things. To me, it's one of the real assets within the Australian beef system. Um, and it's something that we use a lot for our business. We, you know, we really built our business on the platform that the NLIS allows us to actually create. So there is a, apart from the, the, the healthier sort of view of grass-fed beef in America, there is a real efficacy issue around American source product. And of course, just because of the physical environment in America, there are quite a few examples of grass-fed programs or programs that are marketed in the US as grass-fed that are essentially fed a grass diet in a confined environment because that's the way they have to do it. So they do have some natural sort of environmental constraints. But that in itself, I think, you know, really creates that doubt in consumers' mind about, well, how how free to roam was this product? How actually grass-fed was it? Was it actually confined and fed grass or was it really actually living a very natural life? And, you know, so we've really tapped into all of those sorts of things, Kerry, in trying to build this, yeah. I must say that when I've spoken to American producers, whether it be in America or even up at Rocky and their trips to Rockhampton for oh, yeah. the Beef Expo, they are filled with envy about the traceability system here. They're just so envious of what it, what we've done and how it works. And they also acknowledge that they probably could never get the agreement among the producers to make it work in America. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, we've spent a bit of time trying to, to understand that. And we actually, a couple of years ago, created a small herd in Pennsylvania. It is a grain-fed herd. And, um, we just helped the people there actually create it and sort of get it up and running. They're servicing a local supermarket there. But we were really interested in to get involved in it simply so we can actually understand how buying cattle and owning cattle actually worked in America. And it is very, very different. It's different by state. There's a, there is plenty of people over there, you know, genuinely trying to change things. But I think because, you know, you're never going to have a nationally uniform system, yeah. it's always going to be difficult to um, to have people trust us. And, and trust is an important word. In fact, when we talk to our customer in America, you know, we never set ourselves up to be a competitor to the big meat suppliers out of Australia, you know, the teas or the greenhams or any of those sorts of things. Yeah. You know, we wanted to be something different, and they, even though we we do actually deliver a beef product, in many ways our customer says to us that the most important product we deliver for them is transparency. Yes, we have this a big back end computer system that essentially allows our customer to jump into the system in America and actually see right back to the farm. Wow. You know, see all of the compliance documents online, full time, all that sort of stuff, and. So the, the consumer in downtown Boston's got a box of your beef they can dial up and see the farm where this beast grew up. Well, the consumer probably can't, but the customer, our customer can. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. and, and there's no doubt we could go to that next yeah. level. Um, we've never been asked for it. Interestingly, our customer doesn't – they do look at it, but they don't look at it all the time. They just yeah. know it's there. They yeah. trust that it's there, right? right? So it's, a, it's really interesting once you establish that, you know, it just becomes what – the product is and so 
you know, we're continually working on that because, you know, you, you collect up, you know, the more and more claims you make on a box, the more compliance you have. Yes. And so it is, they're complex things to manage. We try and do that as simply as we can. Sometimes yeah. you just, you know, you can't simplify it all. So, and, Murray, uh, you started to buy cattle after you'd set up the American arrangements. You started to buy cattle. What type of cattle? We're British crossbreeds and um, Euro crossbreeds, you know, flatback cattle. We're not particularly uh, committed to any one breed. Um, you know, we've got lots of Angus cross cattle, Hereford cross cattle. We do have some Santa cross cattle in our system. Not, you know, um, that's about as far as we go in terms of a mix. But you know, we're really looking for well, well raised, well weaned, vendor bred cattle. So that's sort of three hundred so, kilos. So, yeah. what? How old are they when you when you would you prefer them? Just just weaned. If we can, you know, ideally get an animal sort of. 275 to 320 kilos in that range, Terry. That's the ideal sort of position for us and an animal that's, you know, gone through that early growth. If we can take it somewhere and put it on good pasture and get it up to our specs, our kill specs, sort of around that 500 kilo mark, that's what we want. So Mm. so let's go to the adjusting. Your your cattle, you you have rigid guidelines in the the care of the cattle while they're on adjustment? Uh, Look, we... We work pretty hard to select the farms that we use and, you know, we've got a lot of farms that have been with us for a long period of time, which is terrific. And, you know, we've paid cattle off and we'll buy new cattle and put them through there. Forming a relationship with the farm is probably the most important thing we do. Obviously, having a look at the farm, making sure they've got good water fences, you know, yards, all those different sorts of things that they're interested in actually growing good pasture because ultimately we want to get an animal off there then we've got to make sure that pasture management is something that they're the farms are really engaged in and obviously you know we want good animal welfare standards but you know we're I think if you uh, you know you have a meeting of the minds with the farm you know those things just flow we we work pretty hard with our farms on a protocol pre-slaughter to make sure that we have the animals well hydrated that we we um, supplement them before trucking so that we get good MSA scores and so all of those things are I suppose, part of that relationship with the farm, yeah. So, Murray, no HGP is, as you mentioned, no antibiotics. Low-stress handling is important. Uh, are these features part of your marketing strategy? Certainly the claims around HGPs and antibiotics and things are all part of, you know, the way we export to the US. I suppose in terms of our marketing strategy, look, we, you know, we don't sell the ultimate beef product. Our customer does. So I suppose we, we market to them. We use those sorts of things, Kerry, because it actually just allows us to actually deliver better quality products to slaughter. And if we can get really good calm animals delivered to slaughter, then we minimise our non-compliance in terms of MSA grading. And those sorts of things are important because if you can get rid of all of those non-compliances, make sure you deliver as many uh, or you maximise the value of those carcasses, obviously you know, we all make more money, which is what it's all about. I suppose we use the term adjustment. We're not really an adjuster of cattle. We pay on the basis of weight gain. We pay our farms every month though a fee to actually hold our animals and then we top them up at the end based on the weight they deliver. Um, we use the term adjustment because it's well understood in the market, but um, our model is not really an adjustment model. You know, we're not... Uh, we don't just leave cattle there and want them to be there for a period of time. We really want so growth the, rates out of the cattle. So the more weight they put on, the more money goes to the, um, the owner of the paddock. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and look, we, you know, we don't run uh, a, a grid as such. So you know, we've got obviously we have requirements that you know uh, we'd like out of the out of the carcass, but 
you know, that's responsibility for us. I and mean, then we have a group of herd managers that keep an eye on the cattle, you know, when they're ready, when we think they're sort of within the specifications that we want, we'll take them. We don't penalise our farms for fat covers and carcass sizes and things like that. That's a responsibility we take. And look, it's a, it's a grass-fed product. You know, you get natural variations. Yes. And so, um, you know, if we can slaughter an animal sort of 480 to 520 kilos and get, you know, 6 to 10 mils of fat, yeah. Um, and you know, get good compliance on the MSA side. That's ideal for us. Yeah. So your your animals are processed in southeast Queensland. Anything different here when you're processing? No, no. Um, yeah. All very standard. Look, we you know we um, process one day, grade the next, bone the you know bone the next day, and um, we don't hold any stock here. So we you know we pretty well we kill bone, pack the container, and ship, um, and. Uh, chilled, Most assume, of the animal uh, goes to America. Uh, chilled? Yeah, everything goes, everything, all the primals to the US go chilled. Yeah. Uh, all the trim goes frozen. And we, sh- we ship a, uh, you know, we sell a few little cuts um, back to our processor and they sell them off into other markets for right. us. But And that's really just because there's no market or, you know, better value outside of the US for those sorts of things. But um, the vast majority of the carcass goes to the US, either chilled or frozen. Yeah. So you offload in Philadelphia. Is it uh, is the meat recut there by any chance? Or well, we, so we deliver primals into Philadelphia. That's yep. right, primals and trim all into Philadelphia. It's cut into consumer portions there and um, frozen for delivery direct to homes. It's so, home delivered. Um, Someone knocks on the door and they've got a box of Australian grass-fed beef to deliver. <laughs> well, it's yeah, it's a it's a box of protein essentially. So yeah. they. You know, we we're, we're part of um, you know they they sell lots of different things chicken turkey pork um, I think they do a bit of lamb from time to time so um, and they do salmon as well so yeah it's a it's a protein box that's essentially delivered to door so um, our product is you know cut into consumer units and then fed into that supply chain yeah so I assume they're in Philadelphia at least and in Boston yeah so the the, the deliveries happen all over the country I mean, our our product is, is further processed in Philadelphia and goes into the distribution system from there. And I think they've got distribution you know, points all over the US. So um, you know, it's, a, it's a pretty substantial business, been going for a while, which is great. What and, sort of uh, numbers, in fact, are you processing every month now? We're only doing about, well, depending on the month, sort of 500 to 700 animals, depending on the month. Yeah. That's still quite substantial. It'll keep you very busy, 500, 700 carcasses. Well, yeah. well it does. Yeah, look, it, it, we, you know, we'd, we'd like it to be more, but, um, uh, you know, at the, at the moment, that's the number. And, you know, the last couple of years, getting hold of uh, cattle has been a challenge, as you know. Yeah. But, um, you know, that'll hopefully, you know, free up a little. But, you know, that, yeah, you're right, it keeps us busy. I mean, having our farms... And then getting the spread, making yeah. sure that the cattle are coming through is, is a complex thing. Yeah. Mario, I know you tried Asia at one time, I believe, um, within your grass-fed beef, but that didn't quite work. Uh, any particular reason why? Uh, <laughs> picked the wrong partner, I think, Kerry. <laughs> I think that's really... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I just think, you know, the um, it's just a more discerning market and yeah. it's just an easier... Well, for us anyway, yeah. uh, you know, America has been certainly an easier place for us to, you know, find like-minded customers. Yeah, right. And in America, you've got one customer, but tell me, is it, do you get feedback from customers? You mean from from their customers? From consumer? the consumer? From the consumer? Yeah. 
Yeah, look, we, we get feedback from, you know, our customer over there will give us feedback from time to time. We're, you know, we've been very fortunate that, um, you know, obviously picking the right cattle, we've never had issues with product going into the system. Um, obviously, we keep a really close eye on the MSA scores and, you know, we always want to be sort of in those, you know, high 50s, early 60s um, in terms of our MSA scores. And I think if we, you know, we're consistently there, we're always going to hit a standard that's yeah. very acceptable in, in the US. But look, we, you know, we do get feedback from our customer from time to time about, you know, product. And, you know, we've worked with them around trying to minimise further processing in the US. It was interesting when we first started doing business there, you know, the question of carcass size was discussed quite a bit and we really went back to what do you really want to present on a plate? You know, what do you actually... And that's how we really picked the, the carcass size of 480 to 520 kilos. That really delivers optimal cuts for them in terms of cut size, you know, when you actually deliver a primal over to the US. I mean, obviously... We're happy to process a heavier animal, but at that sort of 500 to 520 kilo, um, you know, with that sort of fat cover, most of the primals hit good sizes that, you know, flow through their system really, really well. So that, you know, that that's really the way we've designed everything. It's really come back from, you know, what are they really looking to try and deliver to their customer? Thoughts of expansion, Murray? You, is the European market or the UK market interest you at all, or is there just too much grass-fed beef over there? We've had we've had some conversations. We haven't done anything about it at this stage. It'd be interesting to see what the free trade agreement with the UK does. You know, and obviously that that is potentially an opportunity. We are looking at other markets to source cattle from, still sending the beef to the US. That's certainly something that we're looking at. But look, at the moment, uh, you know, the US market for grass-fed, you know, is a it seems to be growing quite well. The volume's good. You know, the the capacity to make good returns there is is good. And while the currency is you know uh, in our favour, it's certainly an opportunity market. And the US themselves, you know, um, I suppose find it. You know, we we have some competitive advantages that actually just make it good for us to do business there. So that'll be certainly the primary market for the next few years. Murray, obvious question here, and I have to ask it. Uh, what happens when adjustment dries up? We have another another smacking drought. Do you have to, <laughs> have to feed yeah. your, I know you don't want to think about it, but uh, I assume that you have some plan uh, in you, process. Yeah, look, we, we we think about it all the time. Actually, it's it's one of those things that you know we've, we've thought about a lot. We've we've looked at various things. We've looked at silage. We've looked at lots of things. Really, the only solution for us is uh, geographic diversity. I think that's, you know, so at the moment we've got farms from Mundubbera right through to Holbrook in New South Wales, so Mundubbera in Queensland right through to Holbrook in the month of April. We're putting some cattle into Victoria. The way that we've really approached this, Terry, is to sort of say, well, look, let's work with the farms on, you know, what fodder they've got available. If they think they can carry a certain number of cattle, then we'll discount that number a little. We try and work on herd sizes that allow us logistics efficiencies around B-doubles. And so that means generally, you know, we've got several hundred animals, but we don't have any herds that absolutely dominate our business. And, you know, that's I part of our strategy is making sure that if, you, if it does dry up anywhere, you know, we don't want a predominance of cattle in one particular region. So spreading them around is, is really, I think, the best way that we can actually mitigate. Look, it is, it is difficult, you know, growth rates at the moment are less than we wanted, even though we're coming out of, you know, uh, a great couple of years, you know, the dry spell that we've had over Christmas and the start of this year has 
slowed growth rates. So look, it's something that we're watching all the time. It, it might not be a full drought, but you know you do get a dry spell and the growth rates just dry up. So uh, you know you, you're impacted by it all the time. Let's hope you don't have to look at it too closely for a long, long time. Final question. On the barbecue, I hope you manage your own barbecue, You do, do you? And, and if <laughs> I do. when you I do. cook, how do you cook your steak? How do you prefer it? My preferred steak is a I, – I love a T-bone steak, a grass-fed T-bone steak, and um, I'm, a, I'm a medium rare person, yeah. Yes. You know, put do. it on once, turn it once. Yeah, I, I really like uh, a nicely – probably – Closer to rare than medium rare, but, um, you know, a, a good T-bone steak, you can't beat it. Mm. Murray, I think a lot of people would agree with you. Murray Richardson selling grass-fed beef to a very welcoming market in America. Well done and good luck. Thanks for being with us on The Grill with Beef Central. Good on you. Thanks, Kerry. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan and this is The Weekly Grill. 